Heavenly Father, uh, the magnitude of what we're doing right now is uh, not something that we can see fully or clearly. Right now in this room, the bride of Christ is gathered together in this local community. And we are coming to worship the one true God. Absolute reality. Who spoke everything into being. And we're coming to have communion with you. To hear from your word. To sing songs of praises to you. And to magnify your name. Not only in Father, not only in the singing of songs and the prayers, but Father, in us embracing the truth from Scripture and the reality of your being. So I pray right now, Father, that every distraction in me and in my friends here, every hindrance, every barrier would be removed and that we could see the glory of Jesus Christ in the Word. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So if you have your Bibles... Please grab them. I hope you do have your Bibles or some kind of reading uh, device. Um, And turn with me to the book of Jonah. Today we're, as others have said, we're going to begin a new series. We're going to uh, look at this Old Testament prophet. If you don't know where the book of Jonah is in your Bible, it's right after the book of Obadiah. (laughs) That may not be helpful, but uh, it's actually at the very end of the Old Testament. Um, so if you find Matthew, you're probably more familiar with Matthew, flip to the left a bit and you'll see it. Jonah's very short, four chapters, and uh, though I gather all of you are familiar with at least one element of this story, uh, my prayer has been uh, leading up to today is that God would be gracious really in opening up this book in a real and profound way that we would see some of the deepest realities in all of scripture presented in this story of Jonah. So the book of Jonah is interesting because it's this really literary uh, work that is amazing. It's beautiful. It's poetic. There are words, there are phrases, there are themes that recur in it um, and are woven throughout the narrative. And it's an incredible tale on, on many levels. Interestingly enough, though, very little of the story actually has to do with the event it's most known for, which is this fish that swallows Jonah. Um, that's secondary at best. It really is an incidental part of the story, as you'll see. Um, and you would, if you were reading casually through the book of Jonah, probably even miss the, the fish swallowing Jonah and spitting him up back up. Um, the main point of this story is breathtaking. And it is one of the glorious things in all of Scripture. And I've been asking God to shine a light on the main point of that story as we go week by week through this text. And so if you could grab your Bibles, go to chapter 1, verse 1. We'll begin with the first three verses. It reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." 
Now, the book of Jonah is, is very strange and unique on several levels. Before we dive into what we just read, let me give you a few of them. First, we don't know who the author is. The author is never spelled out in the course of the book. We are not certain who it is. Um, there is a predominant belief and theory about it among Christian scholars, which we'll get to in a, in a few weeks. Um, but we don't know who he is. He's not called out in the book. And like I said, it is a brilliantly written piece of narrative, poetic, very deep wells of truth and theology, despite it only being a very small four chapters long. Unlike other prophets, Jonah is unique in the sense that his book is not about his prophecy, by and large. It is a story of his life. It is a narrative. It's not a, an exposition, which is what most of the prophetic books are. And what's even more strange is that Jonah is not the good guy in the story. Jonah in this story is actually the bad guy. And that's very interesting because what it means is that, um, and we wouldn't expect that, what it means is that we are seeing Jonah learn something about God here. He does not start out in the right place, as you can see from the opening text. And that means that there is something that we need to learn from this. There's something that we need to connect with here. And then we have the, the fact that most of the prophets, when they prophesied and when we read their prophecies, they focused on the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah, um, God's interactions with his covenant people. But Jonah is not called to go to Israel. He's not called to go to Judah. He is commanded to go to a foreign nation, foreign country, Assyria. And at the center of Assyria is this key city, Nineveh, and he's told to preach there. This is extremely unique. This is weird. This is strange. Other prophets in the Old Testament are not told to do this. There, there are a few exceptions to that rule, but by and large, most prophecies are for the covenant people of God. Yet here, Jonah is called not to the people of God, but he's called as a missionary to a foreign nation to call for repentance. That's strange within the prophetic writings. So at the start of this book, we are introduced to these two concepts. We're introduced to Jonah, this person, and we're introduced to Nineveh, this city. Jonah is a prophet, appears very briefly in 2 Kings. He is a prophet speaking on behalf of God to the kings of, of Israel. Beyond that, all we know about Jonah is in these four chapters. And so as we go through the next few weeks, uh, my hope is that we learn more and more and more about his character, his personality, what makes up who Jonah is. Um, Nineveh, on the other hand, is far less historically obscure. We know a lot about Nineveh. We know a lot about Nineveh from Scripture. We know about the Assyrian Empire, and we also know a lot about it from just simply history. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about Nineveh, like I said, it's a key city in Assyria. Assyria is this kingdom that dominated all of Mesopotamia, and it is the largest nation, the largest uh, empire in the world at this point in time. And it is a military powerhouse located somewhere along the Tigris River, northeast of where Israel is. Now, Nineveh is a military powerhouse because they were really good at war. In fact, they had an infamous reputation for being particularly brutal and ruthless and violent, a kind of reputation that is without, probably without equal in human history. There might be a few close runners. Uh, and we see this in the scripture. We see this in the archaeological record. For example, their own uh, art depicts 
grisly acts of like torture, dismemberment, humiliation that, to be honest, we simply lack categories for in the modern world. We don't see this kind of stuff in the modern world, and most historians consider it largely unparalleled. And at this point in the sermon, I actually was going to list some of these things out. But last Saturday, I ran them by my wife, and she said that would not be a good idea. Um, And it is not because it's too much for children. I'm going to be real with you. This is too much for adults. When I told her this, she was like, why did you tell me that? (laughs) Um, There are certain things you can think of and conceive of that you cannot unthink of and unconceive of once they're in your mind. These things are in that category. Um, If you were to imagine the worst kinds of things that you could see other humans doing to humans, this probably, what they did, uh, what you think of, would pale in comparison to what the Assyrians could come up with to humiliate and brutalize nations that were in their captivity. Um, So they were a cruel empire, and they were violent, uh, by and large because their primary deity, Asher, was the god of war. And so that was part of their culture, part of of, uh, their way of life. And, And Nineveh is a cultural hub for this people group. So we have these two realities right at the front. We've got Jonah told to preach to Nineveh, and we've got Nineveh at the center of the largest empire in the world, who has a a reputation of brutal violence. And it says here at the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And this word is intended, as described here, to send him to Nineveh to preach God's word. And we may not know all that what the word of the Lord means in this passage, but we do know that the word Lord for example, is actually not in the Hebrew, Lord. It is in the Hebrew, Yahweh. It's God's proper name. Whenever you see it all capitalized, Lord or God, it is the Tetragrammaton. So this is God's personal name. God came to Jonah and said, I want you to do this. God's name is Yahweh. Yahweh, the word of Yahweh came to him. And so it comes unmistakably. Jonah hears it, a command to go out, preach to Nineveh, Um, because their evil has risen up before the one true God and God wants to warn them that that's not a good idea to be evil in front of the one true God. And Jonah's response to this is not obedience. It is to run in the opposite direction, to, in fact, go down to Joppa, pay a fare to get on a ship and head to Tarshish, which is the extreme west of the Mediterranean Sea, the opposite direction, This is not obedience. Jonah is ignoring a clear command from God to preach to this other nation. And after the description I just gave you of Assyria, you might be thinking, well, I don't blame him. Honestly, uh, based on that description, I would have a hard time making an argument for going to a place like that. Imagine a modern uh, scenario uh, in the world that is hostile to Christianity or hostile to the Word of God and walking out in the middle of the street and preaching there, not something that you would want to do. It's not something your flesh desires to do. That's what Jonah's being asked to do. Um, but what's odd about Jonah's hesitancy here is that it's not driven by fear. For example, Jonah actually doesn't just 
disobey God and ignore him, he goes, charts, charters a, a boat out into the middle of the Mediterranean, which would be significantly more dangerous than if he were to just stay home and not go anywhere. He doesn't do that. So why would you leave the safety of your own home, your own family, your own people, your own country, and go in the opposite direction that God has commanded you? What's going on here? When we disobey God, let's be real. When we disobey God, we don't book a trip to the opposite side of the world to do it. That doesn't happen. There's something strange here. Um, Verse 2 tells us why Jonah did this. Jonah didn't do this just to disobey God. He did this to flee from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of Yahweh. Verse 3 repeats this. He wants to get away from the presence of the Lord, his God. And so this isn't just disobedience to command. What's going on here isn't just disobedience. What's going on here is Jonah wants to get away from God. He doesn't want to be near God. He wants to run away from God. He wants to get away from his presence. He doesn't want to be anywhere near God. Now, why in the world would a prophet of God desire to get away from the presence of God? Well, the book of Jonah doesn't leave us guessing. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah confesses openly why he makes the decision that he did in the first three verses. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this, And he prayed, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew these things about God. The reason he goes to Joppa and pays a fare for the ship to take him across the sea isn't out of fear. The main factor here isn't fearfulness of the Assyrian Empire. It's because Jonah knew that God is merciful. And that's a big problem for him. That's a huge problem for him. That God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That God relents from his own justice for these people is a big issue for him. In Jonah's mind, Nineveh should be laid to waste. In Jonah's mind, and we'll explore reasons why he thinks this, what the motivations are for him in coming weeks. But suffice it to say, Jonah does not desire grace or mercy for the people of Nineveh. He wants them to be decimated. The idea of God's wrath against the people of Nineveh is a pleasing thing to Jonah preaching mercy to him is not what he wants to them is not what he wants to do so he flees the presence of god this isn't just a desire to disobey a command this is a refusal to acknowledge god's own character he says i knew you were this way i knew this was your mo i knew this is what you did you're merciful and gracious so god is being rejected by jonah that's why he leaves Jonah doesn't want anything to do with a God who's like this. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were going to be gracious to enemies like this, and I refuse to accept that. And the irony of Jonah's actions 
is that he is, when he's fleeing the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God, doing exactly what all people do naturally when they come to the reality of God. It's the very reason that Nineveh is so jacked up, so messed up, so evil, is because of this same thing. It is the same kind of rejection of God's person. Jonah, in fleeing from the Lord in the first three verses, is recapitulating the fundamental response that all humans have to the reality of God. And so at the very beginning, in order for us to understand this book, in order for us to understand who Jonah is and why Nineveh is the way that they are and why we are the way that we are, we have to understand this reality, this universal response. Jonah is showing us in his response to run away from God, the backlight against what the main point of this whole book is. And the main point of this book is what chapter four, verse two says. God is gracious. He is extraordinarily gracious beyond our wildest imaginations. And whatever we can conceive of in terms of God's grace will fall short of where it actually is. That's the main point of this book. Every week we'll see that, different shades of that. And right now we are seeing the backlight from which it will be um, experienced and understood by Jonah and by the people in this book. And so to understand God's grace, to understand the glory of God's grace rightly, we need to see this universal human response to reject the living God and to run from his presence. And that's what the book of Jonah presents. So if you could grab your Bibles again, turn to Romans 1. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here understanding why Jonah did what he did, understanding why we all do what we do, and then we're going to head to hope. Romans 1 verse 18. Paul tells us in Romans 1.18 this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul's going to tell us why Jonah does what he does in the first three verses. So he opens up with the concept of the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It is God's holy and righteous response to any kind of evil in the universe. It is divine justice. And Paul says it is being revealed in the world against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry about sin, according to this verse, about the rebellion of mankind away from a creator. And the scriptures refer to this anger primarily as the wrath, the wrath of God. Now, if the idea of God's wrath makes you feel uncomfortable, it should make you feel uncomfortable. It, it should make all of us feel uncomfortable. That's a healthy response to the idea of God's wrath. The wrath of an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent creator over all creation is a fearful thing. In fact, it's so fearful that a lot of people who teach the Bible struggle to teach about wrath. It is a difficult thing. It's not comfortable to teach about this because nobody wants to hear that God can get angry and, and God can be wrathful. But it's everywhere through Scripture. Everywhere through Scripture. Old Testament and New. 
So what is God's wrath? Let's understand what God's wrath is. God's wrath is justice. It is a a holy desire to set right in the universe everything that has been set wrong by sin, by evil, by brokenness. So God's wrath isn't a flaw that he has. Like our wrath, when we express it because we're imperfect, is flawed deeply with our own desires and passions. God has no flaw. This is an expression of his goodness. And Paul says here that God in his wrath is responding to something that's happened, something fundamental that's happened across humanity. What is that something? Well, he says that men have by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because there is this massive cross-species suppression of the truth by mankind. And Paul is about to tell us what that is in verse 19. Listen closely. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to human beings, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So when Paul says suppression of the truth, this is what he's referring to. He says that the existence and reality of God, his, his person, his being, his character, who he is, has been made plain to humanity. It's been made plain to man. Everyone at some level, every human being on the planet with cognitive faculties that allow them to understand the world around them, everyone knows deep down inside that God is real and that he should not be ignored, but should be honored and enjoyed. That's the truth that's being rejected. That's the truth that's being suppressed. Paul says that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly, which means unambiguously perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's made it his purpose to every human being on the planet to show that he is not only real, but that his very existence, his being, is worthy of honoring and enjoying and cherishing through everything that we can see in all of creation. And I know at this point, I know personally, because I would have objected about seven or eight years to everything I just said. Objections can be raised to this. And certain folks might say, listen, it seems unclear that there is a God to many people on this planet, not just to, you know, atheists. Everyone on this planet has their own definition of what God might be or might not be. And um, what I would ask is this. Having made that objection before, I would ask for humility and to take the word at its face value. God is saying to all of us that no one has ever rejected the existence of God, the reality of who he is because of a lack of evidence. No one's rejected him because of that. That's not the problem. At some level, everyone who sees the world deep down inside knows 
And we can disagree with that. We can reject it. In fact, this is what Paul's saying we would do. It's not a shock to him at all. Um, but no one rejects him because of lack of evidence. And he explains why in verse 21 through 23. So listen to this section here where Paul dives even deeper. He says, for although they knew God, humanity, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So now you see, if this is true, why it is that God would respond with wrath. Paul says that God has made himself clear, plain, unambiguous. There's no excuse for mankind to miss his existence. And here's why. In the smell of every flower, in the color of every blue sky like today, <laughs> in the setting of a sun or the rising of a sun, I just, um, it's not in my notes, so if it sounds stupid, <laughs> I didn't think of it until just now. I, I just came back from uh, vacation, and so I was in South Carolina um, a few weeks back, a few months back, actually, a while ago. Uh, but uh, I walk on the beach. I grab a coffee. I grab my, my Bible. I walk on, my, walk on the beach at around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning because I like to do what everybody else on the beach likes to do at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's see the sun rise. And I don't know if you guys have been to the East Coast, but to see the sun rise is something unbelievable. Everybody on the beach has their phone out and is recording it, taking pictures, they want to capture what they're seeing. Why is that? None of the dogs were stopping. Why is it that we feel that? Our response to a breath of fresh air in the middle of a hiking trip or the laughter of a child, a baby, or a bite of good food. I had an amazing burger yesterday and it was delicious. Why is that that we assume that that's an accident? That the pleasure that we get from those things wasn't created by a person who wants us to be glad. God gave us all of those things. They are designed to point to him. The one thing that wasn't created and the source of all things and yet we as a species made in his image do not see the sunrise and naturally on our own flesh desire to honor him or give him thanks for that or worship him even though he alone is worthy and he alone deserves that kind of response. <laughs> and the great tragedy of man's rebellion that this specific three verses are pointing to is that in man's rebellion, in his turning and running from God, we become futile in our thinking and our hearts are darkened. Humanity was made in the image of God to know, enjoy, and even reflect the worth of God to all creation. Think about that for a second. That's the reason why we exist. You know, if you know that 
sentence I just spoke, you know the reason why every human being on the planet exists. The most important thing about them is that they were made in the image of God for the glory of God. That's the main thing. We were made to worship God. And so when we run from him, when we turn and we run in the opposite direction of who he is and we try to flee the presence of God, something catastrophic happens in that heart, in that person's soul. It says we claim to be wise even all the while we are trading the glory of God for the glory of creation. We are, we are tra- making a trade. We're saying, I don't want the beauty of God. I want his stuff. And we cling to the things in this world and we deify them. We, we take gifts and we make them into gods. And we put on the throne of our hearts things that cannot save us, cannot satisfy us, and cannot bring us ultimate joy. This is the main problem with the world. Every other problem that you can conceive of in the world, every other violent activity, every every other oppressive regime, every other act of starvation because someone took out foodstuffs and did not feed a a nation when they were holding uh, holding people hostage, everything that you can conceive of that is evil or wicked in this world, every problem sits on the foundation of this exchange, this response. So underneath every sin that you've ever committed is this disposition of the soul to embrace something above God. And we need to think, we really do need to sit and just think for a moment how horrible this is. I know it's not comfortable to think these things, but we need the grace of God backlit by the truth of what's happened. The creator of all things, infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, infinite in beauty and joy, is real, more real than you can imagine. And he desires to be known by you and to be enjoyed by you and to be embraced by you. Yet, the natural disposition and response of a human being isn't to embrace him. It's to look at his glory, his reality, who he is, clearly communicated through every smile and laughter that you've had in your life, every tear of joy, and to say to that, no, I'm not interested in you, God. I'm interested in your things. I'm interested in what you've made. And we trade him in all of his splendor and beauty for frail, fleeting images. Here it's images that resemble man, birds, animals, creeping things, anything in creation. That's Paul's main point here. Anything that is not God. And in the process, we become fools, just like Jonah in the first three verses of his book. Jonah is fleeing the presence of God right now, not just out of disobedience to a command. He's fleeing the presence of God because he doesn't want God. He doesn't like who God is. It is a rejection of his own person and character. Jonah hates that God might show mercy and grace and love to people like the Assyrians. They don't deserve it. It's not about a command. He is running from the presence of God. And it's because he's holding on to something in his life that is more precious to him than God, 
something that has taken the throne of Jonah's heart and refuses to allow God his rightful place. And this tragic allegiance that he has, even if he didn't recognize it overtly, is that something other than God has revealed that as soon as God tells him to do something that God approves of, that God delights in, we see that he defies. He says, no, that, you've crossed the line there. What I want is more important than what you've asked. Now, this is where Romans 1 comes into play. When we think about God's wrath, when we think about the word wrath, popular culture, history, even scripture will tell you that predominantly what comes into our head is like a natural disaster or to be punished by a foreign enemy or uh, pestilence or famine or some kind of divinely wrought justice. We think of it in those terms. And that's not inaccurate. These are all vivid ways that God will try to shake us out of our stupor to show us he's the most valuable treasure in the universe. But that's not the wrath that's being revealed in Romans 1. That's not how God initially reveals his wrath, which is fascinating. God's response to humanity's exchange of his glory for the glory of creation isn't initially any of those things, those visual destructive things, but is in fact actually far worse. God's wrath in Romans 1 is far worse because God in Romans 1 tells us he lets us run from him. He just says, go. Listen to verse 24. This is after all of those verses from 18 to 23 telling us what that exchange has been. This is how God responds. Therefore, God gave them humanity up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why did he do that? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature, creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The wrath of God that's being revealed in Romans 1.18 is that God gives humanity exactly what they desire. He gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to sin, to dishonoring their own image-bearing bodies. In other words, he lets them run from his glory to the frail glory of anything else they desire in all of creation. And this is an unimaginably catastrophic display of God's wrath. God lets us go. There is literally nothing more terrifying. Nothing more terrifying. If if in the presence of God is the only place in the universe where we can feel purpose, meaning, joy, gladness, fulfillment, then running from God, being outside his presence, is the worst kind of ruin you can imagine. And this has been the fate of man ever since the beginning. Let me go through a few passages real quick. We see this in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. After they've made this same exchange, I want that fruit. I want to know like God. I want to be like God. I don't want to worship you. 
Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Shortly after this, they would be driven out from the garden and the presence of God. We see this in Israel when they abandoned God for the things of this world, idols around them. Jeremiah 2.13, this is God talking through the prophet My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the exchange that all of humanity has made. It's not just the people of Israel. We taste the fountain of water, the the living water that is the reality of who God is and the treasure that he is, and we spit it out on the ground. And then we spend the rest of our lives scraping dry, barren soil that will never satisfy us. And then in Acts 17, the center of human intellect, the city of Athens, Areopagus, Mars Hill, Paul goes there to preach the gospel. This is the center of the Gentile world. And he tells them this, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Therefore, being then God's offspring, that's us, we ought not to think that the divine being, the creator, is like gold or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Paul's telling them that before you ever put a chisel to a stone (laughs) to carve out a guard, you had traded the glory of the one true God for the glory of something in creation. The God of the universe was dethroned in your heart, and you've embraced something infinitely inferior, like gold, like silver, like an iPhone. sports team, political party, or even good things like family. We've taken God out of his place and put something else in there that's part of creation. And can I be real with you? God will never be the second in anything. He will not. The second role and everything after that is not the place that God will reside in anyone's heart. So his initial response is to let us run from his presence into the arms of darkness and into the arms of futility. That's what the first three verses of Jonah is talking about. That's what they're displaying. That's what they're communicating. This is the natural state of every human being on the planet apart from God's gracious work, a desire to flee his presence for something else. And before we move to hope, praise God, there is hope. I want to again just think about this in our own lives and reflect for a moment. This is not an isolated situation. Sin that we commit, everything that we do that dishonors God, everything that we do that dishonors our fellow man is not in itself the ultimate thing that's been broken in us. It is merely a fruit of this fundamental exchange. So every 
impure thought, every lie that you've told, every selfish action, whether we recognize it consciously or whether we don't recognize it consciously, this fundamental reality, this exchange at the core of our beings, pursuing joy in something over God, has happened. Jonah is not an anomaly. He's not an anomaly. Jonah is not an exception to the rule of human, the human condition. The reason this book is in the Bible and the reason that Jonah goes on this journey is for God to show us that Jonah is a picture of all of us at some level. We are all Jonah. But praise be to God, there's hope. Because God doesn't leave us to ourselves even though we do deserve that, even though that's justice, he doesn't. God's wrath, astonishingly, in the book of Jonah, in all of scripture and in our own lives, is not the final word. Because what Jonah said in chapter 4, verse 2, is true. God is gracious and merciful. He relents from disaster even our own running from him. The very thing that Jonah is most afraid of God giving to the people of Nineveh is the very thing that he needs most as he puts his foot onto the ship at Joppa to go to Tarshish. God's grace. He needs God's grace. He desperately needs God's grace and does not understand that he does. And that's what this book is all about. Though the glory of God, the beauty of God, the, the, the honor that God deserves has been trampled by man's natural refusal to give him honor, God isn't finished with us. He desires to bring us back to him. He desires to bring us back into his presence and he intends to run after us to do it. I want you to listen to 1 Timothy 1 where Paul tells us how God ran after him and therefore how he's run after all of us. Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. This is Paul the apostle. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. They poured into his soul. And then he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is that saying, Paul? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God came after us. That's why, you want to know why you're in the room right now today, worshiping God? Because this verse happened to you. This reality happened to all of us. He didn't leave us in our sin, but he came into the world to save us, to rescue us. Paul says the grace of our Lord overflowed for us because Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's his goal, that's his desire. Sinners who exchange the truth of God for a lie, God's coming to rescue us. Even though we had honored creation in the place of the creator, the cross of Christ is God's pursuit of us. Those who had plunged headlong into the wrath of God in darkness and futility. We had fled from his presence by rejecting him. And then we encountered Christ. That was our story before we believed the gospel. That's who we are. Now, I want you to think about the cross as we close for a moment. In order for God to set things right in us, 
he needed to pour out his justice and his wrath on someone else. And we'll get to that concept. It's called substitutionary atonement in two weeks. It's at the center of what it means to be a Christian. How can a good God who is righteous and just forgive people who've done this, what we talked about today, to him? In order to do that, he pours out his wrath on his blameless, perfect, holy, precious son who would bear our sins. So what did that wrath look like? What did the wrath look like for Jesus? What did it sound like? What did it feel like for him on that cross? We do not need to guess. The Bible tells us Matthew 27 answers all three of those questions. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To pay for our fleeing from the presence of God, Jesus inexplicably somehow experienced on that cross the very presence of God fleeing from him. And he was left there for the first time in all eternity, perfect communion with his father, broken and forsaken by the living God, the same God who we forsook to embrace broken things in this world. That's how Christ made right what we made wrong. And in a moment, in that moment, he alone deserved to be embraced by the presence of God. Out of all people in this world, he alone deserved to have that union forever, yet it was removed from him, and he experiences the wrath of the presence of God being pulled from him, and in him being stripped from the presence, or the presence of God being stripped from him, we are clothed in it. We are filled with the Holy Spirit when we have faith in Christ Jesus. We become temples for the living God. If you received Christ Jesus as your Savior, this is true for you. He didn't let you run. He, was, he wasn't going to let you run. He pursued you. There is an impulse in God that is more powerful, more glorious than simply his wrath, and that is his grace. And his grace was racing towards you as wrath collided with the world and intersected at the cross, cutting off God's wrath for you, anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. So in a few moments, we're going to be worshiping in the act of communion, the Lord's Supper. And um, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are welcome to receive the elements, the cup, and the, the bread. And what I would ask that you do as you receive those elements is that you recognize what they mean what happened to him on that tree and what happened to you because of it. Feel the weight of those realities. That's what the blood and the body are. That's what the, the bread and the cup are. They are a picture, a vivid picture of what it looks like for God to be gracious, what God to be merciful. We ran from him, but he ran after us. Though we fled his presence and rejected him, and his glory, just like Jonah did. His grace overtook us on the cross so that his glory would now be our treasure for all eternity. That's what happened. 
And that's what communion represents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, re- the reality of, of what we saw today in just three verses of Jonah is so important. There's no way. It's impossible for under- uh, us to understand the depths of your grace and the magnitude of your grace without understanding the injustice we've committed against the most wonderful, holy, glorious being in all existence. And so I pray right now, Father God, that your spirit would come and help our hearts feel this reality, know it and embrace it, and that we would recognize the payment that was made for us on the cross when Christ cried out to you. And we would recognize the gift given to us through the work of Christ. When you've given us your Holy Spirit, you no longer will be apart from your people. And one day in the future, we will see you face to face in your presence for all eternity, which Psalm 16, 11 says, at your right hand is fullness of joy. In your presence are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. Help us expectantly hope for that reality because of what was done on the cross. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.